The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. John 12, 36 through 50. The unbelief of the people. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs, done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard, has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thank you, Dave. You guys can have a seat. I encourage you to turn to John 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. We've been looking at the last public statement of Jesus over the last couple of weeks. This is the third time, that, the third week that we're actually looking at this public statement. The first week we saw the paradox of his glorification, that death leads to life. Last week we got to look at his undeniable mission of going to the cross. The cross was not an afterthought. The cross was not a mistake. The cross was not in kind of Christianity 2.0. It was always, it was always the plan. This week we get to finish this public statement with the third focus, and that is Jesus' witness to the Father. But we have to deal with a passage kind of before that. John offers us a commentary of sorts before he finishes this last public statement, and so we're going to look at that first, verses 37 through 43. Just prior to, to jumping in that, I, I want you to consider a question as kind of I have the last couple of weeks. How do we measure success? How can we measure when a mission, when a uh, pursuit has been successful? You know, a lot of options are offered around this, both in the business world and in the personal world. Of when can I say life is success? When can we say that the business was success? When can we say that the endeavor was successful? Here's kind of one description of what it means to measure success as I was looking for some easy way to package this. This comes from the Harvard Business Review. It says this, to measure success, you need to set goals. But not all goals are created equal. Taking the time to outline specifics and measurables and achievables and relevant and timeless goals will provide you with the foundation you need to measure the effectiveness of your project. Can we just assume something here or all agree upon something this morning? That from an earthly viewpoint, Jesus' ministry looked very unsuccessful. This is why, like when Peter hears about Jesus going to the cross, he pulls him aside and goes, Jesus, can we talk about this plan? He did that because in his mind, as he equated the goals and the achievables and the relevant timeless um, measurables, he went, that's not going to be a successful ministry, Jesus. This is why when, when Jesus went to the cross and people are mocking him, 
They're mocking him because from their standpoint, when they look at all that Jesus has done, they're seeing somebody who has failed at his mission. They are mocking him because it's like the Pharisees won, Rome won, humans won, Christ is on the cross. From all intents and purposes, Jesus failed. I mean, yes, when, you, when we see all that Jesus did, I mean, it, it, doesn't, it really doesn't seem like he made a really big splash uh, with his coming. Yes, there's a triumphal entry. Yes, Jesus gathered thousands. Yes, his 12 disciples faithfully believed in him or mostly believed in him, the exclusion of one. But when you consider and measure the value and the power put behind the whole, and excuse this wording, experiment of the Son of God taking on flesh, it doesn't seem like um, the investment paid off. Like the amount of capital and power that God put into sending Christ to this earth to take on flesh, and he humbled himself to go to the point of cross. It doesn't seem like, if I can continue to use business language, uh, that the return on investment was a reasonable investment. And I think John can hear that in the crowds. I think he can hear that in the reader, that he's hearing this almost unspoken at times criticism when we get to the end of Jesus's ministry. And the criticism is, if Jesus was truly the son of God, wouldn't more people have believed in him? If Jesus was the son of God and actually did these things, wouldn't he have made a bigger splash? If Jesus, the Son of God, who had all the glory and power that God bestowed upon him, if, if he came to earth, wouldn't people actually see him for who he is? I think John can hear this. And so, before we finish this last public statement, we have to... I say deal with. We get to look at this passage that we have today because this, this passage or the first part of this passage, 37 to 43, it's a commentary on the state of things. John, the, the, this gospel writer, is, is, is panning out looking at, at, at kind of, it's, it's an aside from him, uh, from him. He goes, listen, I need to tell you what has gone on. There's an explanation. And the explanation is simple. It's the explanation for the reason of unbelief. It's an explanation of this simple question. Why didn't people believe in Jesus? This is an age-old question. You know, we've looked at phrases in the past as we've gone through this book, like, uh, why do some see Jesus as a liar, others see Jesus as a lunatic, and yet we see him as Lord? Why do some appropriately see him as the Lamb of God, and yet others see him as a stone of stumbling and rock of offense? but I want to make this discussion a little more personal. Why can't we get people to see what we see? Why do we see Jesus as the Lamb of God, as our Savior? Somebody that we get to rest in and run to. And others see him as an offense, as a sham, as a foolish, no-name guy who died on a cross. This question creates, has created much struggle throughout the Christian life. I would say every generation, every century has dealt with this question. Why don't all people see Jesus for who he is? I mean, we've, we've tried everything to, to, to free people from the destruction that's ahead and offer them the salvation that's being offered in Christ. We can plead with people. We can pray for people. We can debate with people. We can insist that he is actually Christ. We can then pray more. We can scold. We can pray more. We can plead even more. And yet, some do not see the salvation that's being offered by Christ that we see today. And what we actually have to say is some cannot see this salvation. So we have to return to the age-old question. Why? Why? Why, or rather, what is the reason for unbelief? That's really what John is dealing with in this, in this first section. What is the reason for unbelief? 
Because John does not want us to get this far into the gospel, hear all of these stories, and for us to think like some other people thought, well, if the crowds didn't believe him, if the people who actually saw him do these signs and miracles, who sat with him, who could question him, who, who got to spend time with him, if they didn't believe, why should I believe? That's really what's going on in his mind and these readers' mind. If they who could see him and touch him and experience him firsthand, if they couldn't believe, why should I believe? Well, John offers us an answer for the reason for unbelief. It's, as I said, in 37 through 43. I, I want to walk through this slowly because it's an important aspect of the gospel. It's an important aspect of, 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 of the Bible, of, of Christ, and yet it's a difficult one. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to go there today. It's, I love this is why we preach expositionally, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, because we get to deal with these difficult questions. Like, what's the reason for unbelief? Why do some see Christ as a liar? Others see him as a lunatic, and yet we see him as a Lord. Why? Well, we can start in 37. We're just going to walk through this. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. You know, it can be easy to think as you're reading this book that, uh, and when you're pleading with somebody, that what they need is more information. What they need is more detail. What they need is more explanation. What they need even is more time. If, if, if we think, well, they don't understand it, it's very easy to think, well, they just didn't see enough, hear enough, know enough, experience enough. And yet John, at the end of this public ministry of Jesus, clearly says, they did many signs. They saw all that they needed to see. Sign here is pointing to all of the miraculous works that pointed to the eschatological reality in, in regard to the identity of Jesus and the present work of God in this world. These signs uh, pointed to all the times when Jesus went, you're looking for God, that's me. You're looking for the son of the, the Lamb of God, that's me. You're looking for somebody to save you from this bondage that you're stuck in, that's me. All of those signs that we've gotten to see, these seven signs throughout the Gospel of John, and even more that these people have seen, they've, they saw all of those signs, and yet they got to the end and they didn't believe. They saw all that was needed. They heard all that was Required. They asked and answered all the necessary questions, and yet they still did not believe. So why? I'm going to read the answer. 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. I'm going to give you the answer of why they have not believed in the shortest explanation that I could possibly think of. Because God said so. As a kid, I, hate, I hated that answer, because I said so. Mom, why can't I go there? Because I said so. Dad, why can't I do that thing? Because I said so. I asked this question a, a, a couple of, many times. One of them that stuck out the most in my upbringing was, Dad, can I have a motorcycle? No. Why? Because I said so. Now, Larry Stack would agree with that. Definitely, he's, yeah, right, right, Larry, because it's the dumbest thing on earth. Except I had one, it's a lot of fun. Because I said so. I hate that answer. I hate, I said, because I said so answer. Because it conjures up in him, he goes, I need more detail. I, 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 I don't like that. That's not enough because my own pride and, and, and my own um, kind of self-governance is, 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 is accosted then because I said so. And yet, that's what we have here. Because I said so. But thankfully, God provides more detail. And so to fully understand the explanation, we have to spend some time in the Old Testament. And we have to spend some time with the prophets. Here's what one commentator wrote as he's setting this up. He says, John's indictment that even though Jesus had performed such great signs before them, they were not to believe in him, established a link between the Jews 
failure to believe during the day of Jesus, and the unbelief displayed by the wilderness generation, and again, and the prophets of old. Can I just say that there's nothing new under the sun? In this explanation from John, the the gospel writer, he goes to two places in Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 53.1, and the second one is Isaiah 6.10. We're going to look at both of those. You can turn there, though we're going to spend the most time in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 53 probably is, is the, the, the passage that's a little more common to us. We read it often. It's uh, that famous passage of the suffering servant. And it foretells of the coming salvation. But the coming salvation takes place through a means that no one expected. It's not this victorious king who's going to come to this earth wielding a sword and going to, you know, kick Rome in the teeth. It's through a suffering servant who's going to come and is going to suffer for us and die. And here, it sets up this whole thing, this whole piece on the suffering servant in, in again, Isaiah 53, 1, by saying this. Who has believed what he has heard? The question is, who's going to see this? Who's going to receive the prophecy from the Lord and understand it to be good news? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, just a quick aside, this language, the arm of the Lord, Isaiah's been using for the last 13 chapters. It comes up in chapter 40 the first time, and it's going to be throughout the rest of this book. And essentially what it's looking at is this, this is a promise of restoration, and the promise of restoration is pointed towards those who have seen the arm of the Lord. Essentially those who have seen the Lord working, those who can see the the Lord's power, those who can, who can identify this is God himself who is working. So who is going to believe? Who is going to understand what he has heard? Those whom have seen the Lord. But then we can continue asking the question, well, who has seen the, the arm of the Lord? Who has believed? Who, who is actually, who, who, in order to be saved, who has the Lord revealed himself to? Well, the statement here in 53 is pretty straightforward. Who has believed? Well, who has believed is the person that the arm of the Lord has been revealed to. But then we can ask another question. Why hasn't the arm of the Lord been revealed to everyone? What is needed for the arm of the Lord to be revealed. Is it more signs? Is it more sermons? Is it more conversations? Is it more debates? Is it more pleading? Is it more prayers? Again, I want to keep this personal. I want you to think of that person in your mind as tough as this is. Why is it that some can see the arm of the Lord and others can't? What's the effect of that? What's, what, how can we break that cycle? How can one person Again, see the Son of God as the Lamb of God, and the other person see him as a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. How can we reveal to people the arm of the Lord? What's stopping the revelation? That's the other way you could ask it. Well, that's where Isaiah 6.10 comes in. You can turn there as well. We're going to read some, some of that section. Isaiah 6 is a very familiar passage to us. It's, it's one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament just because of what, how it describes the grace of God and the glory of God. Again, Isaiah 6, at the beginning of, of Isaiah's ministry, he thought, oh my goodness, um, Israel is going to be destroyed by the coming um, Assyrians. And Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah, or the year that he died, he's, it says in, in 6.1 that he saw the Lord, he was lifted up. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled his temples. Isaiah, in a moment of desperation, wondering what's going to happen in life, went up to the temple. And at the temple, he was ushered into the temple. Had an actual moment, however this worked out, whether he was physically there, whether he's in his spirit body, I don't know. But he saw the Lord. He had a moment with the Lord, and he saw the throne room of heaven. 
He saw the glories there. He saw the, the cherubim uh, singing forever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He saw the, the altar of incense and he fell on his face and saying, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I'm with a people of unclean lips because when he saw the glory of the Lord, the first thing he knew was I do not belong here. I am a sinner. This is a very dangerous place for me because my sin uh, it m- must be paid for. I must die here. And yet we see the angel pick up the coal from the altar of incense and touch it to Isaiah's lips and and allow him to be there, cleanse him. Well, can you think about how that passage ends? We spend a lot of time looking at just the glory there, appropriately so. Just think about how it ends. The Lord speaks, and he speaks to Isaiah. This is verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah, here am I. Send me. Now you would think that if the Lord specifically calls you on a special mission, sends you out, that you would be sent out knowing that you had the full weight of his power behind you that you could do no wrong, that every sermon that you would preach would be amazing, that people would just listen and they would fall on their knees because you'd be able to know the Lord is sending me. This has to be a successful mission. But how does the Lord continue? He said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What did God say? God sent Isaiah and then promised that no one's going to listen. Isaiah, you're going to have all the signs necessary. You're going to have all the words needed. He'll go and everyone will see with their eyes what the Lord has determined for them to see. And yet no one will believe. Isaiah still went. We just have to, this is an aside somewhat from the sermon, but the glory of the Lord was so compelling that even in the presence of earthly failure Isaiah went it's okay I will fulfill what you called me to he still went okay because it's a joy of mine to proclaim the grace of God but we're back to the question why then do some believe and others do not And the answer is very simple. Because God has determined that they will believe. Or to say it in in the negative, God has not granted them the gift of faith for those who have not believed. The same reasons why the Jews did not believe after seeing the signs of Jesus is the same reason why Israel didn't believe God in the days of Isaiah. And it's also the same reason why Israel didn't believe God in the days of Moses. Why? The Holy Spirit didn't remove the scales from their eyes and unstop their ears so that they might believe. It's a heavy sermon. That's why I prefaced it with expositional preaching. It's, it's a heavy topic, I know. I've got one more spot I want to go in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 29. Now, I wish I could read the entire chapter but in preaching class, they said that's a bad idea because people, after so many verses, have a tendency of zoning out, so I'm not going to. But if I could offer some homework for today, go home and read this entire chapter. We're in, our, we're, we're in this book for our Bible reading plan. We just started it yesterday, but this is at the end. Deuteronomy 29 is a chapter that God renews his covenant with Israel. And it's a chapter where... The, 
this book is written in uh, like 30 days, the last 30 days of Moses' ministry. He writes down and essentially it's like, listen, I, he knows he's going to die. He knows Israel's about to leave him. And so this is his one last chance of like, you've got to get this. And Deuteronomy 29 is, is when the Lord, um, re-est- not reestablishes, but Moses reminds and renews, this is God's covenant with us. I just want to skim a couple of pieces. It says this in Deuteronomy 29.1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with his people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants into this land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, he doubles down on those signs. I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness and your clothes have not worn out and your sandals have not fallen off and you've not eaten bread and you've not drunk strong wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord. I mean, he just recounts all that the Lord has done for them. He, 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 he brings them back to all of those memories of consider the Red Sea and consider the the bitter water that was turned to sweet water and consider the manna and consider the water coming from the rock and consider being saved by the serpents by just looking to the serpent. I mean, consider all of the ways that you have seen the glory of the Lord. And, and yet, some of you are going to see all of those things and still not believe. Turn to verse 18. This is a warning because he knows, even though they've seen all of the signs and miracles and wonders and heard all the sermons and had all the data dump of what God has done and personally experienced God in ways that, that in, in, in visible, physical ways that we haven't even experienced him, says this in 18, beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Beware lest there be any among you a root bearing poisonous or bitter fruit. The one who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. It's really interesting to read this covenant renewal that Moses had with, that God had with Moses, because you would think he's renewing it and saying, and you're going to be that faithful nation. But he gets to it and goes, no, you still don't have enough to save yourself. I'm the one who has to open up your eyes. Can you want to think about how this chapter ends? How Deuteronomy 29 ends? If you walk into a Christian bookstore, those still exist. It's probably going to be on a t-shirt somewhere or a coffee mug. It's a verse that we love to champion. That we love to sing praises over. But in the context of Deuteronomy 29, it means something a little different. The secret things belong to the Lord your God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the Lord. Why is Deuteronomy 29, 29 put in there? Because the question that's on their lips is why? Why do some believe but others don't? Why do some hear the same sermon and hear it and receive it and understand it and others, it falls on deaf ears? Because the secret thing belongs to the Lord. I just want to stop for a moment and acknowledge the pain and difficulty that this subject causes us all. We've actually had people leave our church pretty recently, in the last couple of years, because of this. I understand here, I don't have the fear of preaching election and predestination here because we, we, we champion the sovereignty of God in that. But I get how difficult it is. It, 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 it's, it's, it's at a costing of our soul. But it's not difficult because of how it's said. It's difficult because of what's being said. 
It's not one of these things that we scratch our head at and go, what's that mean? It's not one of these shadows that we have, you know, like eschatology. How is the Lord going to return? We're, we're peering into the shadows saying, I think we can figure it out this way. That's hard at times because like what's being said? I don't know. No, we know what's being said. We don't like, or how it's being said. We, we don't like what's being said. Because what's being said is that God chooses who is going to see and hear the message of the gospel. But I need to remind you of some truths to maybe soften the blow, that might be the wrong language, but to help us grapple with this. Because God is just in determining whom he chooses to save. But he's also the justifier. Think about Romans 3 for a minute. It says Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why when we stand up here, what we'd like to say is that the people who have a better chance of hearing and believing and singing are those who have spent more time around it, those who were born into a family that, that was good and righteous and upstanding, those who have done the right things. But what Romans 3 says, what the gospel says, is no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is at the exact same starting point, dead, hopeless, without hope. I mean, everyone is at the mercy of God. Verse 24. For all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in this divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's again what one commentator said, if the depiction of God as the cause of unbelief makes God look unjust, we must look not for the resolution in the doctrine of God alone, but in the presentation of God provided by his son. Jesus Christ, who perfectly exemplifies the mercy and grace of God. As Calvin said, Jesus is the unique mirror of his divine grace. I could sum all this up in a, in, in, in a really simple and, and might be a tad reductionistic statement. This is why Jesus is so important. Because without him, yeah, it should just lead us to, to, to anger but he is the only person who can bridge the gap between God and man. And this bridge is something so simple and profound that it stumps the smartest of men. The bridge is faith. The bridge is not uh, uh, allow me to believe and to see and to experience enough. Imagine that. Imagine if that's what the gospel was. See and experience enough. It's up to us then to make sure that we have enough. Or the bridge is simply saying, trust in me that I will do what is needed. But this is what's so hard about faith. Because it, 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 it leaves us with nothing that we normally cling to. It gives glory to only Christ and not ourselves. This is how this section, again, this commentary ends. Nevertheless, this is verse 42, we're back in John 12. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the Son of God. Why? Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I said at the beginning that's, that people from the very beginning, starting with Jesus and every, every generation since, has struggled with this question. Why do some believe and others don't? And it's a struggle because ultimately in, in our own souls it comes down to why do some not want to give up everything and just simply trust in Christ and others don't? 
And the reason for that is because they don't want to give up their own glory. Because the gospel is looking completely outside of ourselves and saying, I offer nothing. And Christ gives me everything. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Okay, the commentary from the uh, Apostle John is over, but we have one last statement, and we've got a few minutes left. And I'm, I'm going to deal with the next six verses very quickly. And I'm doing that because I recognize in the coming weeks as we're in this, the upper room discourse, we're going to deal with these same things. So well, forgive me if I'm going to gl gloss over things, but we're going to return to all of these same um, subjects here. Because John has one last piece of this statement. And here it is, that there's an undeniable exclusivity with Christ and the gospel. That if you want, to, again, to think of these statements, that if the only person who gives witness to the Father is Jesus. Hear that again. The only person who gives witness to the Father is Jesus. The reason with religion, the the, not the reason, the struggle with religion that we can see in Jesus' day and that we can say, that we can see today is that well-meaning people want to come in and speak for God. They want to come in and say, you want to get to God? I've got the answer. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were well-meaning. They just wanted to see people come to God. Now, the way that they pointed people to get to God was completely wrong. They went through law. They went through duty. They went through hard work. They hedged the law with all of their other laws. And they set up these, this bondage against people. But they to give them grace, wanted to see people come to God. But they said, okay, in order to get to God, you got to come through me and my way. But Jesus steps and goes, no, 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 no. There's an undeniable exclusivity. You want to get to God? You got to come through me. And we can so easily turn that on its head. We can so easily take Jesus out of our equation. Or maybe Jesus and is the better way. And they go, yeah, we're holding on to Jesus and all of these other things. But the gospel is about reconciling God to man. And the only way that reconciliation is possible is through Jesus. And he shows us this in, in, in three very simple statements in this section. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll look at this. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me does not believe in me, but believes in him who sent me. And we get to the first one. To believe in Christ is to believe in the Father. That's the first thing that we can see. To believe in Christ is to believe in the Father. The Pharisees didn't see it because the Pharisees didn't believe in Christ. They went, we're believing in God the Father. Jesus is like, great, that means you got to believe in me. There's no way to believe in, the in Jesus. There's no, there's no way to believe in the Father without believing in Jesus. Then there's a second one, 45. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. To see Christ is to see the Father. The, the, the first part of the sermon was very heavy. It was offensive. Hard to stomach. I, I get that. And I got to faithfully preach the text where I, I, I'm, I'm going to go there. But if we just saw that, if we just saw that side of God, he's a ruthless deity. Because we're stuck. And we're offended by that. You mean I don't have a chance on my own? But when you see God as you see Jesus, it doesn't soften God to, in, in the sense of like, oh, well, he's going to make God more palatable. No, we see the full orb of God, that he's the just and the justifier. We see that Jesus came and took on flesh and loved us, did not reject us, did not shame us, did not push us off, did not say do better, but came and said, I'll do it perfectly. When we see Jesus, we see the heart of the Father offering grace and mercy. We see what Moses saw and other prophets saw. He, he, he's compassionate and slow to anger and abounding loving kindness. And then how does that continue in Exodus? But will not let the guilty go free. He's the just and the justifier. Verse 46. And I've come to this world. Sorry, he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. You see how Jesus is always pointing to the Father here? I'm the witness to him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken to my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me authority of what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. To hear Christ is to hear the Father. That's how it is summed up. To say, therefore, what I say as the Father has told me. If you see and you hear and you believe Christ, you will have eternal life. As, as we just wrap this up, I, I want to return to the first part. As I said, the conversation about election and predestination el- elicits a lot of fears and frustrations. Anger. And as I said, I know in this context, there's some of you sitting there, you know, fist pumps, yes, preach, Ryan, go. It's there. We love it. I want to have a little bit of a family conversation as we close. I've observed something in Christianity. And I think we might also fall into that. And here's what I've observed. Those who hold strongly to election and predestination have a tendency of not having a heart for the world. And those who might not hold as strongly to election and predestination and do some exegetical gymnastics over here to make it not seem what it seems, have a heart for the world. I saw this first, or kind of recognized it first, in, in college, I went to a Bible college. And so there were two departments. There was the missions department. I wouldn't learn your theology from the missions department. But man, they had a heart for the world. They would, they would go out of their way to offer the grace of Christ to whomever they saw. Then there was the theology department. You get your theology from this department. But they spent their entire time with their nose in a book, debating right and wrong, and never pointing themselves to the world. I fear that we fall on those one of those two camps. But here's what I believe that is true that right theology should lead us to hearts of compassion where we offer Christ indiscriminately those who 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 believe this election predestination the reform types whom we are have been described as the frozen chosen why do we have to go preach the gospel if god's already decided in the presence of god choosing we stop proclaiming it's ultimately what happens. We sit on our hands. We look internal. It's all about knowledge, understanding. Good things, good things. But I want to remind all of us where the Gospels end. With this description of God opening people's eyes, that the Holy Spirit has to remove scales, where do all the Gospels end? With the Great Commission. After Jesus spent years pounding into people that it all surrounds him, that it's all based upon him, that he alone chooses, at the end of his ministry, he looks at his disciples. He looks at us as his disciples and says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, go into all the world and find the elect. Go into all of the world and make sure that you sit on your hands because, you know, if they're going to see it, it's going to be because of me. He says, no, go and, and spread indiscriminately this message that we have. As I said, we love to preach about the sovereignty of God and his predestination and salvation, but we can't allow such things to lead us to indifference for evangelism. I want to lay that on your heart this morning. 
maybe some of you, that's the fear. If I believe this, that means I have to stop evangelizing. Others of you say, I believe this, so why do I have to evangelize? And yet I pray that our church is both of those two realities that I got to see at college. Understanding the robust theological nature of the Bible and deeply looking at who God is and who Christ is. And at the same time, because of that, be a church that's known for proclaiming the gospel indiscriminately. Because God ordains the ends, who will see and who will not see. But he's also ordained the means. And you know what the means are? Us. Us. Living out our life for Christ on a daily basis. Walking out of these doors recognizing that church is not just something we do on Sunday mornings. Our faith in Christ is not just something that we, uh, that we proclaim here when we sing and when we go through all of these motions. But it's something that we do every single day. There's a couple things I want to point out. Is, is, is this, is, this has been my heart recently just to, in, in, in maybe slightly shifting some things with us. Have you guys noticed how I start and end the services? I have kind of some consistent prayer habits. And you might just think, oh, this is the normal praying thing that the pastor does and he can't think of anything different, so he just says the same thing. No, I'm doing it on purpose. So allow me just to kind of pull back the curtain on things, show you my cards, that way when you hear them, you know where my heart's going. I start the service every single prayer. I didn't do it this morning, though, because I was a little off. But most every single prayer, what? I pray that through our singing, our scripture reading, our fellowship, our communion, and even our giving, that we would glorify Christ. That all of those elements in this service, that's why we do them. All of them, to glorify Christ. Then, how do, how do I end it? I pray that we would walk out of this room better trusting and resting in Christ. That's kind of at the beginning, because that is the goal of all of these sermons. I want you and us to walk out of this room being reestablished in the faith that the only hope we have in life and death is Christ. How do I end the service? That we would be light and salt to a dark world. I mean that. I want you to walk into your context, whatever it is. And people to know that guy, that person, has a hope that is built upon nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That that person has been transformed, not because they saw enough, heard enough, learned enough, preached enough, did enough, but because Christ opened their eyes. That person has a gift that they want to give to every person they come in contact with. There's one other thing. Jeremiah, thank you for sitting back there this morning. I think there's a slide after this before communion. Our prayers. Number four, clarity of service. We're praying for clarity and direction in how the Lord would have us serve our neighbors and our community. That's what that prayer's focused on. As a church, my heartbeat for this church, you should know this. I want our neighborhood, our neighbors, to, to what they know about us is that place loves their community well and that place does one thing excellently and that is indiscriminately share the love and grace of Christ. But my question is, and I still have it as the pastor, as elders, we're praying, what's that look like? What does that actively look like? How do we actively go and make disciples in all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit? How do we take what we do here on Sunday mornings and actively push that forward where there's tangibles, where there's people on the other side of that? What does that actively look like? We're still praying for that. And there's been some really cool things that have happened as of late. Of opportunities, like the Christmas with care thing. No, Christmas with dignity. That, of being able to just go serve other people and what, they, what we hope they see in us is, oh, they're doing this not because it's earning anything, but because they just love Christ and they want to share Christ. But what else? That's my prayer for this church. Is that we would take the theology, we would take the knowledge that we have of Jesus, 
I'm just preaching on my soapbox. You know, we exist so that we might know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, and in so doing, grow the kingdom of God. That's our vision statement. We know Jesus really well, and we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep digging deep. We're going to keep looking at our theology, but the love and serve part, what's that look like? So this is where our heart is. This is where, how, how can we, as a church, as, as, as a fragment of the body of Christ, as I said at the beginning, how can we be known for our love and service to him? So I, I, I pray that you would not get stuck in this understanding of if God's got it, then I don't have to do anything. No, God has it and desires us, commands us to go and indiscriminately preach the gospel as we walk out of these rooms. Now I know I, I, I could, you could so easily take that conclusion, man, I'm going long, and just think, oh, Ryan's preaching law, duty, I've got to do this. No. What, how I want that to be coming out of you is not from a sense of duty, I have to do this, but I get to do this. And why? Because we've been forgiven. Because we've been set free. Because we don't have to do anything. You know, as it's been said, now that we don't have to be perfect, we can go be good. And that's what this communion table reminds us of. That we get the point through every week. I don't have to say, go evangelize, go do this, go, go preach the gospel so that God will love you. No, God loves you perfectly. Because of Christ. Because of this. What these elements point to. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. If you're here with us this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ, if you realize it's the only hope I have in life and death is Jesus Christ our Lord, we would encourage you, we would welcome you to take this table with us. If you're here this morning and maybe you're still in that unbelief stage, maybe you hear this and you're still scratching your head, I don't know whether he's Lord or not. I would ask that you let this table pass you by these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you we don't take these as an action measuring up this isn't part of the seeing and the doing this is the part of the celebrating but afterwards i'd love to talk with you so that i can proclaim the glory of my savior to you the only hope i have in life and death is jesus christ our lord let's pray and we can take this together lord thank you for your word your life your salvation. Lord, be with us as we live. That we, would, we, we wouldn't live in, in, in this closed off, safe reality. That we wouldn't be afraid to indiscriminately offer the grace of Christ to those that we come in contact with. Lord, as we can see from your word, we don't know who is going to believe. And so, even when we have in our, in our thoughts and minds that somebody is so far off from you that they could never see, Lord, we know that regardless of how morally upright a person is from our eyes, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a miracle that you saved any of us. And therefore, that should compel us with the, with the knowledge and the excitement that we get to indiscriminately share your love to all of those around us. Lord, use us. Use us as your church to be known as a community of saints that loves each other well, that worships you only, and that is willing to offer that love to whomever we come in contact with. Let's be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.